How's everyone else doing? Lauren, Chris, how are you guys? I'm good. Good, and you? I'm good, too. <laughs> um, I guess we'll just get right into it. I think we're talking about marijuana today. Is that true? <laughs> yes, that's correct. Okay, that's good. That's that's what I thought, and I uh, I was hoping to get through this entire book of mine, which is called Cannabinoids in the Brain. Um, it was a, a book that I picked up at the Society for Neuroscience conference in November that I was there, and it was uh, recently published. Um, let me see the year. Um, 2018. So, um, and it's by Linda Parker, who I don't know if you all are familiar with her, but she's actually a professor at um, at the University of Guelph. So, not Guelph Humber, but uh, Guelph. the University of Guelph, and she is a, a, an expert in marijuana research. So, uh, but sadly, I have not gotten through the whole book. Uh, there's a lot there, but this was a, a good reason for me to to focus on it. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about marijuana today, actually. So um, I don't know if we decided who was going to be leading this, or maybe, I don't know that we, we even need to. Did we make a decision on if it's someone was going to lead this one? Um, I don't think we oh. decided on this one. Okay. I'm not sure if I should be. <clears throat> yeah. That's fine. I, I mean, the topic was just mentioned, and that was it. Yeah, okay. Which is totally fine because you all have been really good at just, you know, flowing through your the information that you're you've gathered and uh it's all really interesting. So, um does anyone have anything in particular that they want to start with? Anything really cool or fascinating that they learned? Um, I think just um what I was actually just reading a little bit was the history and they were talking about, um, and this website will be posted in the, the show notes list, um, the actual history of where this comes from and how it's such a controversial type of thing. Uh, so the earliest date that I saw was 1951. And they For, were specifically and this talking is the, about... Sorry, this is the history not of marijuana, but yeah. in Canada maybe? or. Uh, Particularly here, they were just talking about the history of the plant itself because they were talking about how it was a controversial type of a plant. And then they were actually talking about uh, THC and how they have changed the level of THC sort of over time to certain amounts. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the plant itself has been used for like over 4,000 years at, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1964, they discovered THC. So maybe that's uh, what you were like. So THC being the one of the cannabis. The psychoactive component. component yeah. 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 Um, so, what, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Crystal. What were you, so what did you find it, about it's okay. They were just talking about how they had actually decreased um, within a couple of year period the amount of uh, THC that was actually uh, put into this stuff. And they were talking, unfortunately, this was in the United States. It wasn't for Canada, but they were talking about how certain states were okay with it, legalizing it, but the federal government themselves was actually fairly strict about the rules mm. um, because of how controversial it still is. And they are saying that it, it has uh, properties, they're saying, for pain relief, 
and whatnot, but um, processing time, and there are a couple of other features that could be impacted by the use. So it's, mm -hmm. it's important to uh, look, look at that. Um, so in my research, well, um, starting off with just the basics and how uh, actual neurochemistry works is that the explanation that I looked at was when neurons fire, there's a refractory period. Um, but what marijuana does is it will, or cannabis itself, so THC, tetra, tetrahydrocannabinol, will bind to your CB1 receptors. Um, usually, anandamide is something that binds there. And anandamide would be something that's released Let's say when you're running and then you get the runner's high, so that pain relief. But um, THC. Which is, can I just stop you for a second? Because just so everyone else knows that that's the natural neurotransmitter. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anandamide is the natural neurotransmitter produced by the brain itself. But THC has a very similar structure to anandamide. So it will bind to the CB1 receptors. And what will, it will do is it kind of removes the refractory period. Um, for the action potentials to fire. So your neurons will keep firing and that's why um, if you grab a hold of an idea, your train of thought just keeps going so on and so forth. So THC would be the one that's actually the psychoactive component in marijuana. And then the other uh, more prominent cannabinoid uh, is CBD, uh, cannabidiol. And uh, that's the one that there's more um, research in recent times. They're looking into it to see what, what its applications are um, for medicine, like just pain relief, um, anxiety, stress relief, and so on and so forth. Now, just to add to that for a second, one of the articles that I was reading talks about uh, what she mentioned about the CD1, but it mentions CD1 and CD2. Two, yeah. Um, there are difference between one and two. It didn't really talk much about it. It was just talking about how it binds to the receptors. Um, yeah. So I. So there. So those are two different receptor subtypes. Um, I know more about CB1. I know less yeah. about CB2. And uh, so the, there is a difference uh, physically between the <clears throat> two. And it. It. I mean, it has to do with the location of where they are, uh, which cells they're on, but I don't know much about CB2. Does anyone else know? Yeah, um, so I found here that the two receptors, it just mentioned it briefly, the CB1 receptors, they said are located primarily in the central nervous system, uh, whereas CB2 receptors are primarily found in the periphery of the body and they, they uh, emphasize that they're found a lot in the immune system. So I found that that was interesting to kind of figure out the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another interesting fact um, that I came across was that how CBD and THC um, counteract each other because of um, their structure. So their their structure is very similar, but just because of a slight difference in CBD, it won't buy it won't bind to the CB1 receptors like THC does. Hmm. Uh, but it binds in a different way. So what it ends up doing is that if it's binding to that CB1 receptor, it makes it harder for the THC to bind to that receptor, um, in turn decreasing your high. Because CBD isn't actually getting you high, it's THC that is. So if you were looking at a cannabis product or just um, 
just marijuana or and you were buying it um you could see i think um the interior store has um percentages for thc and cbd so if you were buying it for whatever reason you would want to and if you were um trying to get high you would want to get a cbd or um cannabis which is low in cbd and higher in thc mm-hmm. yeah that's a, i i mean i know we, you sort of said like getting high but i think it's an important distinction to really emphasize especially for people who are listening because there is a major difference between so if you if you smoke marijuana um it's going to have both yeah um, over time the marijuana that exists now is significantly higher in thc um, than it used to be but the cbd levels i don't think have changed that much but yeah. um but what you but just to reemphasize what you're saying it's the you know marijuana we know gets us high um which is what we call a psychoactive effect but that is attributed to the thc and not the cbd um mm-hmm. and so that's so that's a really important uh distinction to in terms of what's happening at the receptor level because yeah. um cbd is is preventing so it's kind of like modulating some of the thc effects yeah they have um different effects so as you said the cbd at low doses um is more stimulating whereas THC is more sedating. Mm. But they also mentioned in one of the studies that CBD if you use a high dosage um like a higher dosage than you would find in just smoking marijuana uh it can have sedating effects but it has to be a really high dose of it. Hmm. I think that's what I also find. Sorry, Kwan. I was just going to say they they also were talking about um, different uses for it uh, rather than just, you know, recreational or otherwise. And they're talking about how there's a possibility for people, for example, with diabetes, how it possibly could actually be something to help with the the regulation of blood sugar. Um, It does talk, I have seen again, back to what we were saying before, a lot about the immune functioning. So, um, again, a lot of this stuff they say for the research is kind of required uh, and whatnot, but I have heard uh, for a few different uh, conditions where they're actually testing it out versus your regular uh, pain medication. Yeah, and I I suspect then that some of that might be um, maybe more regulated through this, the the effects in the periphery than in the brain specifically. So that might relate to the difference in terms of where CB1 and CB2 receptors are located too. Yeah. Oh, um, another interesting fact um, is that you can't overdose on marijuana. You can, however, have a bad experience and something similar to blacking out called greening out. It's slightly different, but um, as far as you needing a trip to the emergency um, or overdosing on it, it's it's not possible. I believe you need to smoke um, 750 kilograms, some, somewhere around there. Right. Um, within, within a very quick span, I think, within 10 or 15 minutes for you to overdose. Um, but I think you would pass out from asphyxiation way before you could smoke all that. Right. <laughs> That's a that's a really important um, piece of knowledge for people too, because you know a lot of times people 
like we take for granted, you know, alcohol as being part of our culture. And obviously in Canada, we're going through something right now where um, it's getting a little bit like marijuana is getting a little bit more accessible because it's been legalized as opposed to um, what before where it was just available for medical use. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, alcohol, you could overdose on alcohol way quicker, yeah. way more likely than marijuana. Um, but yeah, that's not to say that um, you can't have a bad trip or like I said, green out because greening out is an experience um, kind of similar to backing out, but it's where you keep throwing up because basically you get to a point where um, you're so intox- uh, intoxicated or you're so high that you're unable to like walk straight or control your movements and you can't keep your head straight. So your body's thinking, okay, there's some sort of a toxin or something in my body. And um, one of the one of the ways our bodies get rid of toxin is to throw up. Um, that's one of the evolutionary mechanisms, I guess, built into us. Um, so you would have, I, sorry. Yeah, go. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Um, so you will, ha- you will probably end up throwing up. And right after that, I think um, you feel slightly better. But yeah, greening out consists of having bad thoughts, um, vertigo, and lots of throwing up. I will admit that I have uh, greened out. <laughs> um, I didn't know that that's what it was called, but um, that's that was the experience that I had the most recent time that I used it. I've had lots of bad experiences with marijuana. Mm-hmm. And um, about five years ago was the last time that I did it. And uh, the end result was me uh, projectile vomiting like it was mm-hmm. I was sitting there in, I was sitting facing up a hill and I still <laughs> projected out like up the hill like that's how and it just like wow. came and, and went and I've actually never had really that experience before um, and so it was after actually a, a fairly long period where I kind of felt like my internal experience was that I went catatonic. So I, I, I wasn't moving. I wasn't able to speak. I could hear mm-hmm. the people speaking around me and I was experiencing something that felt like a psychotic episode. Like I, yeah. I thought that I was actually um, dying and I was like this 80 year old woman and that my most recent um, experiences of we were, we were camping so I thought that was all actually a memory from my past and it was a flashback that was coming to me as I was on my deathbed so I lost wow. complete understanding of where I was in time and where like what my body was my eyes were closed so I didn't I couldn't physically check to see if my body was my like 30 year old body or 35 year old body mm-hmm. and rather than 80 year old body and it was very, very scary and because I was going through this. I stopped talking and I didn't speak to the people who were with me because I was so afraid that I was actually on my deathbed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's not unlike, that's the most extreme version, but that those kind of like fears um, have come yeah. up quite significantly for me in different, pa- different experiences. Mm-hmm. With marijuana. Even the oil. So I know a lot of people think that you get um, experiences like that greening out from smoking it. Now, I've used the THC oils to sleep at night just because I have really chronic insomnia. And my doctor gave me the go-ahead to try it, and I bought this one. And the concentration was, I think, 90%. And you only needed a tiny bit. 
I was told about the size of a grain of rice. And at the time, I didn't know. Now, I have a high tolerance to a lot of medication. So whether it's pain meds and, and things like that. So I always take a little more than what's uh, suggested on the bottle. So it comes in, in a syringe as an oil and you just put it on your tongue. And I took 0 0.20 milliliters thinking that it wasn't that much. And I took it at, I think, 11 p.m. And I woke up at 11 the next day. I was up for half an hour, slept until six. My Nana came over. I tried to have dinner. Oh my God. I went back to bed at 6.30 and I woke up at two o'clock the next day. So even, wow. even though you can't overdose, I still think that people need to be cautious about the amount that they consume um, because it's a lot stronger than people think, you know, I mean, when I've been to the hospital for kidney infections and such, and I'm admitted and they give me morphine or, or, um, I can't quite remember what kind of pain med they'll give me through an IV. I will need so much that the doctors will say, listen, we can't give you anymore. You've had seven bags or, you know, for your height and weight, you can't tolerate anymore. So I assumed it was the same thing with the oil. And I felt like garbage when I had woken up. I had a pounding headache. It was the worst feeling. So even though there's no overdose, at least in my experience, I think you can come close to feeling like you're going to just die. <laughs> Professor, I have some questions about your experience, actually, if you don't mind me asking. Of course not. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so my first question is that um, what was the method um, that you, like, how how did you get high? Like, was it smoking? Was it edibles? What was it? It was edibles. So this time was edibles. Um, I and I've much. had negative experiences smoking um, and edibles. Okay, mm -hmm. and uh, my second question is um, after you were done vomiting, um, how did you feel like, did you like have some, a similar experience to Lauren where you had a pounding headache or was, did you feel better? What was it? Uh, better. Um, I don't remember exactly, but I definitely like, I don't know how soon after, but I think mm -hmm. that was sort of like the peak. And then I came down after that. So I definitely did not have a headache. I did not feel nauseous after that. I like, I did not feel tired or anything. It was just like, it was done. <laughs> you can now there is. Go ahead, Chris. There is um, one question I wanted to ask you guys to get your opinion on this. And it was a discussion that was actually had uh, about marijuana and alcohol um, back in another class. Now, something like marijuana, there's discussion, there's debate, there's research, there's questioning. And then there's something like alcohol that if you look at it, it's in a way so readily available wherever you go. Now they talk about how alcohol can actually be worse. What do you guys think about that whole situation? I, about how readily available it is versus not versus controversy. I definitely think that alcohol is worse. Um, yeah. Not necessarily just for the physical um, health problems you can get from it, but I also just think social. So they always say, I mean, being under the influence, whether you've smoked marijuana or you've drank alcohol while you're driving, I mean, either one, they're bad. They they shouldn't be accepted in that situation. But in general, 
I've noticed that, you know, when people consume alcohol, they make really bad decisions, whether it's unsafe sex or they get into fights with people. Whereas most people that I know who've, who've smoked uh, marijuana, they're not, they're so relaxed that they're not getting in bar fights. They're not usually causing any trouble. They just kind of sit at home and hang out with whoever, uh, whichever friends are with them. So I think that it causes, I think alcohol causes more problems, not just to your body, but also for the communities we live in. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, the evidence that suggests that is based in um, our neuro neurochemistry as well. Like if you look at consuming cam- cannabis versus consuming alcohol, you're taking alcohol, um, GABA is being produced. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's letting you go off your inhibitions and um, that will result in you making rash decisions that you may regret the next day. Um, also memory lapses. And um, here's a, I think, I think the uh, stats are something like this. I think 50% of all people who are murdered um, are drunk and 50% of all people who murder other people um, are also drunk. So there's a lot of uh, alcohol and um, violence. There's a lot of hand in hand in in those situations compared to marijuana where it's a, it's acting on a completely different system, the endocannabinoid system. And um, yeah, it's a different effect, but yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's just the marijuana makes your system feel more relaxed. So you're less likely to feel aggressive. You're less likely to, yeah. uh, I don't know, paranoia, because you can experience that uh, with marijuana, but I think it's just physically you're so relaxed that you're not likely to respond to situations in a negative way, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've I've never encountered anybody that's um, been high off marijuana and um, has caused a problem per se, like initiated a fight or anything like that. I I find they're usually just happy and hanging out and just want to eat some food and they, they don't really cause issues. And, it, and if they do, it's usually something that has happened to them, whether it's mm-hmm. they fell or, or they were sick or, or something like that. It's not so much causing problems with other people. Yeah, compared to alcohol, where alcohol may directly lead to either harm to yourself or others, and even in even in death tolls or like how many people die because of that compared to something like weed um, where it's very unlikely. At, le- at least um, a direct result of weed, you dying is very unlikely. No, they don't have a roadside test for driving under the influence of marijuana yet, do they? Like not a- no, I'm not talking about driving, I'm saying in general, in general yeah. any. But yeah, I don't think um, they do right now. Um, I think um, in one of our classes, we discussed something like this. I think they're going to go with something that they're going to check the saliva to see parts per million and um, what what the concentration of THC is, which I don't know if it's a really good idea or not um, for the simple fact, because let's say you got high at 10 a.m. and you're driving. It's in your system. Yeah, or 7 p.m. The concentration may not change that much, and then you can still get in trouble. So I think there needs to be, well, uh, we don't have any proper measures yet. So they would, they would likely be testing for THC then, right? Not CBD? Yeah, yeah THC, uh, concentration of THC, because that would be the psychoactive component. Okay. 
Yeah. So what I've read is that um, like within five days, 80 to 90 percent of the THC dose is excreted. Mm -hmm. um, but if you so that's like from a typical um, dose. But if you're continually dosing, then you would have continual like higher levels that continue to uh, exist, which you would be able to detect in the saliva. Yeah. Um, and so, so you're right. I as that it's, you wouldn't be able to time lock when the person was actually hitting the peak, which would be, um, like 30, about 30 minutes after it's been smoked. Mm -hmm. Um, but you, you still wouldn't be able to tell what, if the levels that were there were because of that peak or if it was because of like chronic use from before or something. Yeah. And I think, um, well, this is just my opinion, but I think we would be better off in, in conjunction with that. We definitely should rely on more sturdy measures to test for this. But I think behavioral tests, just like um, walking in a straight line or whatever they do um, when you're under the influence of alcohol, um, I think those need to be taken into account as well. And I think those need to be implemented. And um, they'd be, as, as of now, they would be a better indicator for time locking, um, whether someone's under the influence or not. Mm-hmm. Now, can they actually send you two to do blood tests if they think that you're under the influence of a drug? I think that's the only test that they have right now. So I think they can, but again, it's not that they're under, it's the same thing with this, uh, like the driving thing. So you could only test to see if there has been marijuana use. It's, you can't, yeah. as far as I know, there's not, there's nothing you can do to find out if they're currently under the psychoactive influence. Yeah. Yeah. They can't tell you if they're, if you're high right now or not. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. From a blood test. Professor, what do you think actually of, um, um, maybe even if in the future, like, how do you think they would go about that aside from behavioral tests, like time locking that? Do you think there would be a way? I don't know. Um, I mean, I guess what you would have to look at. So, because um, if there so was a way to maybe graph. Um, the amount of, okay, so if, if we could like, but that would require you to test before and after and during, yeah. that's a problem. Like if we, were, if we were to like test someone before they were high, it's, let's say they were a consistent uh, cannabis user. So you would see this is the amount of parts per million THC while they're high, it spikes to this. When coming down, it spikes to that. But in a setting where they're testing drivers, I don't know how they would test before. What about a visual standpoint though? What I mean by that is, if you have somebody that you might suspect and you look closely at them, can you see, you know, their eyes drooping or something? Is there some kind of visual kind of cue that might make you suspect that well, I didn't see? But. Um, that may be true for, let's say, occasional users, but for someone who um, smokes uh, every day or consumes cannabis every day, um, their eyes, like, they don't get, I don't think they would get that, or like, um, they don't get that red, or they have ways of, um, I don't, I think they, they kind of get used to it, so the eyes, like, I've noticed that, like, I know a few uh, pot smokers, 
for consistent users and um, I'm unable to tell like just by looking at their eyes versus someone who rarely smokes pot or does it on occasion, their eyes would go red immediately. I think it's um it's just a result of low blood pressure or your blood pressure decreasing and then the arteries in your eyes may dilate, so that's why it becomes red. But I think if your body's being exposed to it um, consistently or over and over again, then I think your body automatically learns to, I think, compensate for such things as well. Um, aside from that, um, if someone, see, that's the thing, like if someone smoked it, you could probably smell it on them or through their breath. Um, or if they could check to see if the pupils, like how dilated the pupils are, something like that, maybe they could do. But um, I don't know if it would be like, let's say concrete evidence, right? Like anyone, let's say someone, let's say a cop pulls someone over at 3 a.m. They can tell them, they can look at them like, okay, your eyes are kind of red your eyes are droopy. And they can be like, well, you're high. Or it could be that they just finished their morning shift or their late night shift and they're going home and they're tired. Yeah. So there's like in those scenarios, and especially a person, just a human interaction, them looking at it, I think there's too many, too many variables, too many, uh, too much room for error or something just by that. Just too many individual differences that that can affect how one appears to. Yeah, I think, I mean, eventually I suspect that there will be, if, I mean, I guess, I guess there's two questions here. So one is, um, like, I know currently it's not legal to drive under the influence of marijuana, Mm -hmm. um, but I actually don't know if what the studies are that suggest that it has negative consequences, Um, like alcohol, we know has negative consequences in driving. And so, you know, the looking at the blood alcohol levels, like we know what the, the data are, like there's been a lot of research into like what levels impair what cognitive functions that are necessary mm-hmm. for driving. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't, I personally just don't know if we know all that for, for marijuana or THC specifically. Yeah. So, um, so we would need to know that. And then, and then once we, if we do know that, then we could figure out how to do a quick test, which is basically what we do with blood alcohol levels in the blood. We just need to do a quick test mm-hmm. um, to figure out how that corresponds to the levels that are actually available in our our breath for example because it is it is excreted and yeah. so we just need to have like all those dosing curves done mm-hmm. and i yeah. don't know if those exist at the time at, at this moment in time yeah i don't think there's many studies looking at people driving under the influence of okay. marijuana, unfortunately um so one of the things here that i did read as a negative thing is that uh it could possibly cause people to uh, make poor judgment. Uh, and the other thing that it says is um, delay in information processing. Mm-hmm. So those are two of the kind of main things that I was able to find in one of the articles that it it says impact. So in a sense, I guess, like you were talking about bar fights and different things like that, I mean, I guess in cases you could still have people that are, you know, making bad choices, so to speak. Well, then I think in that case, you would need to narrow down um, what it is that the bad choice is. Because in cases like bad choice could mean anything, right? Bad choice could mean you overeating or binge eating um, after you're high. 
even though you were not supposed to eat past 11 p.m. versus you um, drop kicking someone at the bar. Because with alcohol, it's like, okay, we know um, it intensifies aggression or it intensifies latent desires or something like that. So people are likely to act in a deviant way. Um, but when it comes to marijuana, we don't know exactly. We don't know exactly what kind of bad behavior that one would one would take part in. It could be just like s- small bad decisions, like okay, I'm gonna eat too much, or well, I'm not really sure. Like I said, like there's not, there's not enough research in terms of that. But yeah, that could be one of the things. But I, I, I don't think or most people who are under the influence of marijuana, I don't think they would usually resort to violence or that's not one of the tendencies that they display compared to alcohol where that's a, that's something that's known that people tend to get aggressive. So let's, why don't we um, switch the focus a little bit on again, just away from alcohol um, as a comparison and talk about some of the, the known benefits of marijuana because I mean I think most of what we've been talking about um, mm-hmm. has been some of the negative consequences. Yeah, which are and really I had, and had a bunch more. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Well, um, actually, we can t- talk about some more of those negative consequences and then move into the positives if you want. Um, well, I just want, and I just want to bring this to the attention because um, it has to do with um, our latest episode, the one we did last week about memory. So. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to um, tell you guys about some studies that they did with um, long-term cannabis users. And um, basically what they found was that, or sorry, long-lasting effects um, on long-term cannabis users. So they they got a bunch of people um, who had been uh, consistently using it for about either at least, or sorry, abusing it for at least about a year. 35 years of their life um and the average dose that they were going by was about 5.8 grams to 4.8 so five to six grams each day um so what they what they saw was um after after doing, conducting some tests they saw that like the 39 percent of users experienced hallucinations and they were mostly auditory and 54 percent experienced delusions 85 percent had organic brain dysfunction, um, which they tested using visual motor functioning and visual perception mm-hmm. skills. And 100% of the users were found to have organic brain dysfunction um, in a test that was testing visual memory for immediate recall. But I just want to point that out that these are, these are users who, have, who are heavy cannabis users who have been abusing it for a long, long time. Um, can you tell me what what was their definition of abuse? So they were they were looking at people who were doing a median daily dose of five point eight grams, and okay. between five point eight sorry between four point eight four point eight and five point eight grams. So they had two I think they had two different sub uh, subgroups. So one of the or I think sixteen participants um, were actually in prison. So they were the ones that were that had a daily dose of about 5.8 grams, and then the non-prisoners was 4.8 grams. And another thing that I want to mention is that these uh, these tests were done about three months after no exposure to cannabis. 
and um, these tests or these effects were long lasting. But that being said, I did look at um, studies looking at frequent cannabis users, mm-hmm. but they were not they were they were not uh, abusing it, so they right. were using it moderately. So what they saw was there was no evidence found for long-term deficits in working memory and selective attention. However, they did see, this is not a negative or a positive, we just don't know yet, but what they saw was there was an an altered um, brain function or pattern of brain functioning, specifically in the left superior parietal cortex during working memory processing. Okay. So they didn't say, well, it didn't really show if it had a negative or a positive effect. All they saw was control versus cannabis users. Uh, there was difference in how that specific region of the brain was operating during these tests. Right. Now, okay. wouldn't this kind of tie as well, too, with the, uh, the information processing part of it? Because if there was a delay in the actual processing of whatever the information that they were taking in, that would impact the the memory perspective too, no, later on. Mm-hmm. From what yeah, I understand, um, I believe cannabis does in part um, affect your short-term memory and memory consolidation specifically because um, tests do indicate um, there's, some Im- there's some delay in both verbal, um, just a retrospective memory, and with verbal memory, just um, immediate response and delayed, sorry, immediate and delayed recall. So I think if um, if your short-term memory is being affected, uh, that would in turn mean that you're not able to consolidate whatever your whatever sensory experience you're getting properly into your long-term memory. So I guess that's where um, the the idea of oh or the the misconception oh I'm, I'm not really sure or the stereotype that oh cannabis users are kind of stupid or lazy may come from okay so that's a a, a good point because those are two different things to mm-hmm. be like that stupid or whatever um versus lazy because yeah. um there is another situation that happens or uh sort of a negative side effect to uh, chronic marijuana use, and I don't know, you know, how much that means if it's an abuse or a frequent users, but um, it's a, a something which has been called a motivational syndrome. So uh, the lack of motivation, um, and that's been reported. That that was reported, you know, many many years ago mm-hmm. about marijuana. Did anyone come up with any recent research on? that um which speaks to whether they're just lazy or that there's literally a lack of motivation that just could be mediated through the dopaminergic system for example i did not find any article specifically about motivation and laziness um i mostly looked at just uh, long-term effects of uh long-term effects of cannabis on memory okay um, I did try to find some positives because this is something, this is something new, and I was thinking about it because um, the, the term "runner's high" keeps coming up. So then um, I tried to look into working out under the influence of marijuana. Um, 
There hasn't been much research, but here's something interesting that I did find. It has to do with um, not while ex not or not exercising while you're high, but basically what I found was that um, there's there seems to be um, canna uh, cannabinoid deposits in um, in in the fat in the fat tissue. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing aerobic exercise and um, that fat tissue is burning. Um, some of that accumulated um, and deposited cannabis in there is, uh, or sorry, um, the THC in there is um, being released into the blood while you're burning that fat off. Um, I thought that was interesting. They also looked at um, the same effects for fasting, um, but they did not see anything there. So aerobic exercise specifically, if you're a cannabis user, um, while you're running, I think that would amplify your yeah. high. So I was trying to look into actually research where they saw people working out or doing aerobic exercise or just strength training under the influence of marijuana, but I wasn't able to find too many studies. I think I found some um, some some uh, anecdotes, but it was just uh, from some people saying how they feel they feel better or they can kind of zen out and they can focus on everything around them, their breathing, um, how they're feeling in the moment while they're running um, rather than being focused on, oh, I, can't, I want to get this done or, or I'm feeling pain in my legs. So yeah, I'm interested to see research in that. They said their, in their, their stamina was boosted or their endurance was increased, but I'm not sure if that's how much that's just a placebo or if they feel like that or if that's an actual effect. So wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't that be more of a placebo? Cause when I think of marijuana, I, I think of how it slows your respiratory rate. It relaxes your muscles and makes motor coordination more difficult. Um, well, hmm, that's a good question, but I guess that, that all depends on frequent, frequent users versus occasional users because marijuana would dif um, have different effects on people who do it occasionally let's say at parties because they will yeah. get high and they will have a trip of their life but someone who's doing it every day um, or throughout the day they're obviously not getting so high that they can't function or they can't walk or they can't cook or do whatever they need to do so mm -hmm. how that how those two different individuals be affected and how they would like, see, this is, this is my thing is that if um, if you're an occasional user, I doubt you would be able to get high and work out because there's other things you'd probably want to do or you would not feel motivated enough to do it. But if you're mm -hmm. a daily user, or sorry, a daily user who who does it for their other activities as well, and then they were they were to try to get high and then exercise, specifically aerobic exercise, because blood is circulating throughout your body. And if THC is in your blood, then it's being circulated. That is completely being circulated again too. So mm -hmm. I just, what I want to know is how is that going to affect your runner's high? And is it going to amplify it? Because not only is anandamide binding to your CV1 receptors, so is THC at this point. So mm -hmm. is, that, is that actually increasing your endurance or not? I'm not, I'm not sure. It might just be a placebo, but I guess we would need to look at results. Well, I would never think of that one, of physical. One question I do have, you're talking about um, this in terms of 
people who would say use it more regularly versus people who do it once in a while. Mm -hmm. It's not anything about people as an individual. So regardless of whether I'm doing it now or all the time, if I were to do it and you were to do it, mm -hmm. the possibility of it, you know, even let's just say me greening out because that's how it impacts on my body mm -hmm. versus you who can have maybe double what I do before it even has any kind of impact on you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it's all it's it's about tolerance as well, right? Because if you're using the substance, let's say daily, your body's obviously gonna or your your the plasticity of the brain. It would just go back to that how um, our brain would adapt to another or foreign foreign agent being in our in our body constantly. So I think either it would increase the amount of receptors in the brain or some, some changes would happen which would accommodate for daily cannabis use versus someone who doesn't use it daily. So if you were if you were an occasional user, for you to do a gram might just um, end up having you green out. And there's other factors involved, not just smoking it, but um, yeah. like, let's say how, how hungry you were that day or what you had to eat that day. How, if you were on empty stomach or not, if you had enough sleep or not, there's 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 multiple factors, right? That we don't know of yeah. yet. But for someone yeah. who wasn't who was a consistent user, their tolerance would obviously be way higher. So it would take way more for them to green out. Yeah, yeah, and I think even if you and I both, let's say, were occasional users, mm -hmm. quote close quote, I can have one amount, mm -hmm. and you know it would do absolutely nothing. Yeah. And you might have that same amount and it go completely in the opposite direction just because the way that the body processes the, the chemical aspects of it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there, there are um, individual differences too. So I'm pretty sure even though we can generalize some, um, even though we can generalize some things, I guess um, a lot of it is uh, based on the individual as well, like how their body reacts to it. Because we have to keep in mind that we all have something called an endocannabinoid system. So depending on, like, there needs to be more, I guess I would say, there needs to be more research into that. Um, but yeah, it is it is a possibility that someone might end up greening it. Because I've seen, I know, and I know, and I know of people who are um, frequent users, but I've seen them green out from a very small dose or a decent dose that they would usually not green out from. Uh, which was surprising. So, yeah, I, I'm interested to see, or I'm interested to know why that would happen too. In in case of professor scenario, um, that is what I've heard. Like usually, usually people will have a green out um, because they took edibles, because um, it's it's way stronger too. Because not only is it going through well, in, in case of smoking, it's going through your respiratory system, but in this case, um, your liver is breaking it down. And um, I'm forgetting the exact, um, I think it's something something like THC9 or something. I'm not sure the exact compound, but when being yeah. broken down from the liver, um, there's a different compound that's produced that amplifies the high. It's also psychoactive. Yeah, which is also psychoactive and it makes it last um, longer. Right. Um, it's uh, a uh, which has 11-OH-THC. 
Mm-hmm. Which is has psychoactive properties equal to or greater than THC, which I thought yeah. that was really interesting. I didn't know that until I was reading about it. Um, but just that idea, I found that idea that like, so THC has its own effect and then mm-hmm. and the metabolite, so the component that is broken down, so it's left over after um, THC has been metabolized mm-hmm. itself, it can have greater equal to or greater psychoactive properties or effects. Yep. So, um, but there was something else that you said that I wanted to add to, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, in terms of the edibles and uh, versus smoking, because, you know, one thing is just like how it passes through our system. But the other thing is that when you smoke a drug, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's marijuana, but it, it like it's like a matter of 60 seconds before it really gets into your bloodstream and then into your brain. Yeah. Um, and so you can titrate that easier yeah. as the user. So I can say, okay, I'm feeling that effect. I'm going to not have another, you know, uh, inhalation of that. Yeah. Whereas if you're eating it, it's already in you and you can't stop it once it's happening, except by vomiting yeah. is our only attempt to get it out. Yeah, definitely. And, um, Okay, here's here's more fun facts, I guess. The reason why we can't eat weed and get high is because in itself, marijuana, it's not THC. It's actually THCA. When um, it's burned, it um, combustion changes it to THC, and that's why we can get high. So when eating it, that why, that's why it needs to be... Um, oh, what's the word? I can't remember. Oh, what happened uh, when... It happens with the vaporizers when you put the marijuana in the vaporizer, and you can still eat that after, after it's been vaporized. So, um, carbonized? No, not carbonized. What's the word? Sorry, I can't recall the word. But basically, it needs to be heat needs to be used to turn THCA to THC, which is then edible and processed by your liver. And that's why we can't eat weed raw, and it needs to be cooked. I think um, at a certain temperature. Three. Decarboxylized? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can actually, um, if, if, you're, if you're using vaporizers, which is a pretty healthy way to consume it, uh, the leftovers, you can actually put them in a pill and you can take them and um, use them as well. I don't know if this was ever a thing for any of you, but when the very first time that I did marijuana, which was back in uh, high school, which was back in the 90s, um, the, I, we ate the roach. <laughs> so we smoked it and then we ate the roach. And, you know, later I was like, that was kind of stupid. But I, so I was convinced that I had a very different experience because I ate the roach. Um, <laughs> from uh, like future experiences where it didn't, it didn't have the same, like whatever body sensations. Anyway, um, later when I started learning about neuroscience, I got into university and studied this. I was like, that didn't make sense that I ate it, but actually it probably did because the heating involved in the smoking of it probably could have heated up the, the marijuana leaves enough so that it actually converted it into an active form that made it inedible. Yeah, plus the residue too, right? From the vapor, so it's mm. it's all gathering because everyone's smoking it, so the residue is gathering at the end of the <laughs> right. or or the blunt, whatever it is. So all that's being gathered. And if you were to eat it, I think it would. I would definitely, yeah, I think it would have an effect. For sure. Yeah. Oh wow! Very disgusting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
You guys are way ahead on this stuff than I am. Never ate it, never smoked it, never, yeah. <laughs> it's only what I read and what I hear and experience. Well, a lot of my knowledge was outdated. So that's why I was actually really interested to read about this because I'm like, you know, so much has changed in the research even from when I first started learning about it. So um, yeah. what about positive effects? Lauren, what about you? What are some of the things that you've uh, learned? Did you learn about any positive effects? Um, so I focus mainly on the positive effects of using marijuana to sleep. Oh, good. Um, I have someone who really wants to know about this. Yeah. So I originally came across this because, again, in high school and such, I've I've used marijuana as well. And I noticed that it obviously helped me fall asleep. Um, so I have insomnia and I went to my family doctor and I said, listen, I don't want to get involved with sleeping pills. They're very addictive. I think that that's a dangerous habit to get into. Um, I've heard that now that it's legal, it has medicinal properties. And what do you think about it for me to sleep? And he recommended it. He totally supported the decision. So I noticed a significant, significant difference in my ability to sleep when I've used it. Um, I've and when, always, when you used what, sorry, are you talking about uh, THC or CBD or? Um, both. So I okay. used uh, marijuana. I just smoked it in a joint. And then I don't particularly enjoy the smell of it. I I don't like the taste and I, I don't smoke either. So I'm really not a fan of the feelings of it in my lungs. So my doctor had recommended using an oil because he said it's got less harmful effects on your lungs. And, and right. um, so I tried it and I got the THC one and I just found that it did a better job of relaxing me. Um, and as soon as the high kicks in, I don't, I, I don't particularly enjoy it. So I find that once I can feel it coming on, I just put my head to sleep and I feel a lot better. Um, now it, it needed to be a high concentration. The ones that I had purchased online were about 90%. It says 90 plus percent because it can be hard to tell exactly. Um, and again, you only need a tiny, tiny little bit of it. So when I did my research on it, um, they said that the brain generates two distinct types of sleep. So there's slow wave sleep, which is your deepest sleep, and there's REM sleep, which is when you dream. So when they administered um, marijuana and they didn't specify whether it was, I imagine it was an oil because you can't really make a, a rat smoke a joint. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that would go down well. So I would, I would assume that it would have been some kind of oil that they administered. Uh, they found that their uh, slow wave sleep increased and that's the most important part of your sleep cycle. That's your Lauren, we're, I'm losing your voice. Are you covering up your phone, your microphone or something? Shoot, I might have been. Does that sound better? No. Sounds a bit distant. Yeah. It's like you just, you did something that just moved away or covered up something. My, I'll try it without headphones because it's quiet. Um, okay. Is this any better? No, but it was fine until just a second ago. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what it did because my computer's charged and... Did you happen to hit like a, a button that lowers the, t the sound or... Maybe here, I'll try. I'll put it up all the way. No. Is that any better at all? No. 
Oh, shoot. I... That's so strange. Did you move? You didn't move the computer or anything? No, it's it's on a desk, and I have the headphones. Okay. Oh, That's one. better. That's yeah. better? Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So I'm so sorry about that. I don't even know what I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I don't know. So I'll just be very still. Um, okay, you were talking about a study with rats. Yes. Yeah, so I would have assumed that they would have administered an oil to the rats. And when they did, they said that um, their slow wave sleep increased dramatically. And they noted that there's two groups of cells, the, I might not pronounce this well, uh, ventrolateral preoptic nucleus in the hypothalamus yep. and the parafacial zone in the brainstem. Uh, those two are actually involved in prompting the slow wave uh, sleep. So they said the reason for that is the hypothalamus is involved in shutting down your brain's arousal signals. And that's what can help you transition from wakefulness to sleep. Mm -hmm. And they said the neurons from the ventrolateral preoptic nucleus, which is part of the hypothalamus, is what connects directly to the arousal promoting centers. So they said this is why marijuana often is used for those who have anxiety and sleep problems because it can help reduce anxiety, which decreases your arousal, which helps calm you and puts you to sleep. So um, I'm glad you bring up sleep because, um, and just as you mentioned, so I think there's, um, the deep sleep, you can, you can get into that way easier and your deep sleep or your stage four of your mm -hmm. sleep cycle uh, the duration of that increases, but as a consequence, REM sleep um, significantly decreases. So you will have not as many dreams or way less dreams if you're smoking before sleeping. Mm -hmm. And uh, what what they saw was, and I think this mostly is anecdotal, but basically there's a surge of um, vivid dreams that people can recall right after following weeks after they stop smoking before sleeping or just stop smoking for a while. Yeah. They will have more vivid dreams because um, their sleep cycle will adjust to going, switching between REM and deep sleep every 90 minutes. Uh, whereas when you're smoking before sleeping, um, the REM sleep cycle is um, significantly shortened. Yeah. So they, they noted that two negative impacts actually of using it, even though it helps you sleep, they said that when you stop using it, mm -hmm. they said that it creates like a vicious cycle of um, using cannabis to sleep. Yeah. It has like habituating effects and it causes increased tolerance. So you need more and more and more of it. Yeah. And then they said that you can actually have sleep, or, pardon me, you have sleep disturbances Mm -hmm. These are actually considered a withdrawal symptom of cannabis mm -hmm. when you stop using it. So I found that to be interesting because, I mean, I think even though you can't necessarily overdose, you can become dependent on it to sleep as your tolerance increases. Oh, for yeah, sure. and that's actually like some of those symptoms are very or the uh, yeah, the sort of side effects are very similar to sleep like sleep, other sleep drugs mm -hmm. that uh, like the REM rebound that you were mm -hmm. referring to, Ayaz, and then um, also just that need to continue it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so it may not be the... Well, the they noticed... 
The endocannabinoid system. So they said that that's a system that serves as a link between the circadian regulation systems, as well as the behavioral and physiological processes that are affected with sleep. So they said that the lack of sleep actually causes this system to be dysregular. Um, mm-hmm. However, they noticed that there's an elevation in the sits. Sorry, at the system at the receptor level involved in recovery of sleep after you. So if you're consuming marijuana and then you stop, there's there's dysregulation. But then when you continue using it, this system is elevated. So they think that this system has a major, major role in in sleep latency and your ability to stay asleep as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think too that it would impact your body in such a way that let's say, for example, you have a pattern where you're going to bed at 11 o'clock every night and getting up at six in the morning. And every night, a half an hour before you go to bed, you have some. Eventually, you would probably see a pattern where once 10.30 comes, uh, either consciously or not, you're looking for that. Yeah. Because your body becomes used to that time. And yeah. that's the time that you have it. And it, after doing it for so long, you, you look for that. And it really it could be the same with that, with food or whatever the case, because your body gets used to it. Yeah. I think it can also depend on the cause of the insomnia as well, depending on what might be causing it. Like mine's anxiety. So even though, you know, I may take this oil every night at say 12 midnight, if I'm anxious, Yes, I crave it, but it does. It takes longer to kick in, I've found. So the more anxious you are, the more you need, the longer it takes to work. But still, that period of time between consuming it and falling asleep is decreased compared to if I don't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. I had an interesting effect with CBD. So I recently ordered CBD because I hadn't specifically taken CBD and I uh, ever other than just marijuana. And so I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to try this out. I wanted to start experimenting. <laughs> um, and so I haven't really noticed anything except last night I took it before I went to bed. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't slept through the night since before I was pregnant. So that's like almost four and a half years now. Um, part of that is because when you're pregnant, you're up a lot and going to the bathroom because there's a baby sitting on your bladder. And part of that is afterwards you have a baby who's up all night and feeding and all this other stuff. And then some of you, some of us get children who don't want to sleep through the night. So, mm-hmm. so that's been my life. And uh, so I just haven't, I haven't had, and I never used to have sleeping problems before ever. Like I loved my sleep from a baby until I got pregnant <laughs> and uh so anyway so I was like oh maybe I'll try the CBD before going to bed because I've heard that it could be potentially useful for sleep and I slept through the night so did Asher which was odd uh he didn't I didn't give him CBD but like he was you know right there and didn't wake up uh and I slept through the night and I didn't feel groggy which often I feel like happens I felt totally fine and I was just so surprised that I didn't wake up one time that I'm aware of 
And uh, I'm going to try it again in a few days and see, because I only have one data point there. But mm-hmm. I found that like absolutely shocking to me that that happened to is me that the night just, that I went. Is that just like the oil stuff? It's the oil of just CBD though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, I have heard that um, you can get it too without the, the THC yeah. Yeah. property yeah. and all that with it. Yeah, they have pills, they have oils. Um, I think they even have gummies and stuff. They There's say that? Specifically okay. selling CBD products, no THC products. Mm-hmm. I know that it's often used for pain. I have a friend whose mother has uh, chronic pain. I don't know if it was from a car accident or not. And she tried everything that she could possibly use. And as she said, most pain meds are addictive and you build up a strong tolerance and you get high off of it. So as she said, she said it it affected her life drastically because she needed it for her pain, but she couldn't drive to pick up her kids. Mm-hmm. So her doctor recommended the CBD because it doesn't have the THC in it. So she's not mm-hmm. being given that psychoactive component and she's able to drive. She's able to go out and do things, run errands. Um, and yet it still helps significantly with her chronic pain. So it's, it's as wow. though it acts on her body without affecting her mind, which is, I mean, as we know, with the central nervous system and stuff, you're, everything's connected. You, your brain's not disconnected from any part of your body, and yet yeah. it doesn't yeah. impair her whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That was one of the big things that I saw when I was reading was they were talking about chronic pain. And then, like I said, um, to how far back exactly, I'm not sure, but I have heard for a few years them talking about it with people with um, with diabetes and regulating mm-hmm. blood sugar. So I think it'd be interesting to see kind of in the next five, ten years, kind of where they go with this. And could you imagine they have all these different medications and they start exploring with different things as marijuana and they find that this one thing is, is going to be the multi-purpose solution i guess Mm -hmm. i saw a video there was a video a while ago i think it was a guy with parkinson's i correct me if i'm wrong but that's that's sometimes when they physically tremble yep yeah so they had tried everything for this man i think he was probably in his 80s and they showed when they administered i think they gave him an oil again and you could see his body stopping it was like stopping a car when you're approaching a stop sign his trembles finally stopped i mean he still had tiny little ones but he was actually able to hold a pen and write his name so it's that's been something that they have a really hard time with controlling up till now and and it seems as though cbd is is a good cure for that and the tremors can actually get really bad like i've known people who've had it and that you can't hold anything you can't Mm -hmm. control because the tremor goes and the tremor goes and that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so I'm just getting conscious of time and uh, this has been really interesting, but uh, I, I kind of want to start wrapping it up. So I'm wondering if each of you can sort of share either um, one last uh, thing that you've learned that you really think is important to get out there um, or a final like thought or reflection or conclusion or something. 
Um, so as far as my final comments on this topic, um, well, I think it's, um, there's a lot of room for growth and just learning in general in all, in all areas, um, legal and scientific. And, um, yeah, I'm very interested to see, um, as far as CBD research goes specifically and, um, its applications in like future medicine, as far as legal goes, uh, as I mentioned already, um, now that it has been legalized, um, that does, well, it's not like there wasn't consequences to doing it before, but like now that it's legalized and more accessible, there's consequences to doing it in certain ways. So I think um, I'm interested to see how those pan out, like how is our legal system going to go about like addressing or just determining if someone, let's say, is high or under the influence while driving. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm hopeful. I hope to see only good things. So we'll find out, I guess, in a few years. Yeah, good point. I think my final thought on this is I'm going to be most interested in the future and seeing how the pharmaceutical companies respond to this because they make so much money off of selling medication and often these medications don't work. So I wonder what kind of backlash they're going to give the marijuana or medicinal marijuana community. Yeah, that's a really good point. Funny I wonder the same. Because they make so much money off of off of uh, medications. And this is not a one-fits-all, but it helps with a lot of things. I mean, oils can even be used as a topical treatment, too. So, yep. Um, actually, funny enough, I'm the last one, and I kind of go with both of you. I, I'm interested to see from the scientific standpoint uh, what happens with it down the road. A little bit more research that they do on how it actually impacts the body, Um, you know, even from a neuroscientific standpoint, um, as well as seeing what happens, because as mentioned uh, by Lauren and myself earlier, once you start to go on the research and you start to see more things that are a benefit, more people want to do it, especially if there's no side effects, you know, no with not withdrawals necessarily, but no, no, it's not limiting their life uh, where it is going to go in terms of a pharmaceutical standpoint. Mm-hmm. So it'd be great to see that in the next say, five, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, all of your thoughts are, are really uh, on point. Like I think a lot of people are wondering where it's going to be leading. I'm curious, um, I guess about, just like the societal use of it because I've even noticed in the last like five months since it's been legalized that so many more people are talking about it openly and I'm used to talking about these types of things among like neuroscience and psychology people but now just like everyone is starting to admit that they have been doing it regularly they're frequent users or that they've started doing it and just the ability or the um desire to talk about it and that like shame of it or the hiding it away from before is it's just been like unveiled mm-hmm. and so that alone uh makes me curious about I guess from a human behavior perspective like what exactly how much are people actually doing <laughs> I, I also wonder I mean they always say it's a gateway drug but I've noticed that since marijuana has been legalized 
now they're starting to look at other illicit drugs like MDMA and such that may actually be beneficial for therapy and, and depression. So I wonder if that'll open the door to mm-hmm. not legalizing all drugs, but kind of accepting, uh, seeing if there's benefits to to the to other substances and, and what it might be able to do for us. And if it's just stigma that's affecting us. Well, the thing for me for the last note is there has been, I guess, thought on this for so long because it hasn't been legalized. Uh, and you see a lot of stigmatizing kind of things around whether it be marijuana or anything else. And I think we're just starting to maybe shift. Some people may have a little harder time than others shifting to the idea that this stuff is helping. Now it's legalized. Now people are coming out about using it, whereas maybe they wouldn't have before because, again, it was illegal, it was stigmatizing. Everybody has their own bias about it. You know, again, from a psychological standpoint, it meant something completely different before it was legalized than what it does now. And um, just one last thing. I think both sides, um, people who are on the side of like, oh, it's a bad drug, gateway drug, don't do it. And the people who are pro-marijuana and they advocate it and they're like, oh, it's everything good. I think both sides will have a lot of learning to do and uh, we will get to learn. Both sides will get to learn a lot about the benefits and the deficits both. Um, because um, each side, I guess, may have a preconceived notions about it, um, but truly the research will, <laughs> research will unveil all of that. So we'll find out, mm-hmm. but I'm hopeful. <laughs> what a perfect ending. That was so well said. And it just, it kind of like warmed my heart imagining the two sides coming together. <laughs> yeah, kind of science. It's yeah. like the 70s all over again. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's a good end. Um, yeah. So uh, I just want to take a few minutes to, first of all, uh, figure out what we're going to talk about next week because we don't have anything planned yet, do we? Um, I don't think so, no. Um, love. Love was one that we... Oh, yeah, love. Yeah. I think we're going to do that as a Valentine's special. Oh, we shoot. We missed it. We, yeah. But we can still do it. So I would like to, I'd like, I guess, the guiding question to be like, what is love? And we aren't going to be able to answer that question. Yeah. But what is love from a neurobiological, psychological experience? Okay. Well, have a good rest of your day then, everyone. All right. You too, Professor. You, Professor. Take care. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye now.